You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. I met this week's guest through a mutual friend, and we quickly became friends ourselves and began to engage in deep conversations from social justice to theology. Sarah Dornbos is one of the most genuine, authentic, and humble people I've met. She does not shy away from her convictions, especially when it comes to thinking and speaking critically about whiteness. Neither does she shy away from her faith and how it informs her engagement in social issues. She's an educator, a justice advocate, as you'll hear about in this episode, and a former athlete. The ideas, perspectives, and opinions that Sarah shares are her own and not the ideas, perspectives, and opinions of the organizations that she's a part of or represents. Sarah Dornbos, welcome, welcome, welcome to The Intersections with Phil Allen Jr. Glad to have you here. Um, For those of you who are going to get to know Sarah in this episode, um, she is a new friend. I call her a new friend of mine. Um, We met through... uh, a mutual friend, Susan Christopher, who I hope will be listening to this episode. Um, and we just we just hit it off, man. We just started talking, walking around the Rose Bowl, having these deep conversations. I'm taking mental notes. Um, and I knew I wanted to get you on here at some point on, on this on this podcast so that people can can glean from you the way I have since I've met you. Um, I'm gonna give Sarah an opportunity to introduce herself. Um, Sarah, you're an educator um, and just a justice advocate and activist. Um, you're a Christian voice for racial justice. Um, I want you to tell us, tell the people about your journey to this point. And, you know, my, my biggest question is, how'd you get, get here? Like, <laughs> was there a moment where there was a shift in your life or have you always been this person that was, that had these these uh, inclinations, for lack of a better term, for justice um, and the work of racial, some would say reconciliation, I, I use racial solidarity. Tell us about you and your journey. Sure, well, I am so excited to be here and share with your listeners. Um, so I think it's a great question because a lot of people are like, wow, well, how is a white woman like you involved in this conversation and so passionate? And so, I feel like to start off, like I shouldn't be here, right? Like I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My dad was finishing up dental school. So please don't bring up the final four to me right now. I was just about to. (laughs) (laughs) But I grew up watching Juwan Howard and the Fab Five and it was such an amazing time to be a basketball fan in Michigan. But I literally grew up in racial segregation. I lived in an all white community in Southwest Michigan. I went to public schools, K through 12. Other than my gymnastics coach, I did not have a single relationship with a person of color, any person of color, not just black or Asian or Latinx, no people of color lived in my community. And I never questioned why. Um, I attended then Calvin University where all my teachers, all my professors and friends for the most part were white. So my first time being in a non-white setting was when I enrolled as a student at Daystar University in Nairobi, Kenya. And even there, my whiteness had benefits. (laughs) So when I came back to the US from that experience, um, I did my student teaching. 
um, at an Indian boarding school in Rehoboth, New Mexico with Navajo and Zuni students. I had, again, zero historical context for why there were boarding schools in the first place. Um, but that was sort of the beginning of starting to understand there was a lot of history in our country that I didn't know. And then I took a job, my first job in the public schools was as an elementary teacher with Cambodian, Laotian and Mexican students. So being in a very non-white setting with my students began to really open my eyes to this idea that I didn't have the whole story. And I actually didn't know what I didn't know. And that's really kind of current day. Um, I work for LAUSD with a program called Kids Hope at the public elementary school in my neighborhood. And I think those relationships have given me sort of the reason to continue to engage in this work and try to understand why and how my students' lives are impacted by racism and how I can advocate for racial justice. And I think those ongoing relationships are really critical. Um, the other experience I had that really shaped me in terms of being a Christian voice for racial justice is my work in Haiti. And I traveled there several times a year for about 17 years, um, originally working with an orphanage and then trans translating at a field hospital during the year that the earthquake happened in 2010. I went several times um, and volunteered just as a translator and then transitioned to working in a birth center there. But I've had these long-term friendships with Haitians that really transformed my life and my perspective. Um, I was in the process of adopting a little girl before the earthquake and then that adoption fell apart and she lives with the family in Haiti still. But that was really where it became personal for me when I thought about starting a family with this little girl and how her experiences would not be the same as my experiences growing up in the US. And I think it was as I came to know people who were poor, both in the US and outside of the US, and experienced them as hardworking, creative, diligent, kind, it bumped into this bootstraps theory I had been taught. Like I could see that hard work doesn't necessarily pull someone out of poverty. And as I saw that in these relationships in my community here and in Haiti, I started to become curious about that. And I couldn't avoid seeing that race was consistently a factor in poverty that I couldn't ignore. So certainly there are links between racial and economic injustice, but I started to see more and more that race was sort of the factor undergirding that injustice. Um, and the last thing that you sort of touched on, I think it's a both and I, I think this is how I was wired that there has always been a part of Sarah Dornbos that has been very concerned with fairness and justice and is very bothered by injustice. And I, I think that has to equate to action on some level, um, whether it's the form of a program or showing up at a protest or educating myself or doing self reflection those are all important parts or ways of engaging in this work. But I think a gospel without the tangible steps of loving our neighbor is not a faithful gospel. Like when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, that's not passive. It's the language of participation. And so I think there's a fundamental human solidarity we share that has to be actively engaged. Um, and I think it takes, when we're actively engaged in the fight for racial justice, I think it's holistic. It connects our heads, our hearts, our bodies. It moves us from this individual worldview to one that is collective and takes into the account that our lives are connected. And that whether we realize it or not, like 
what I do as a white person, what you do as a black man, all of our work together matters. And so our goal in racial justice and equity is the same, but our work looks very different if we're a person of color versus a white person. That was a lot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, it, it reminded me of one of the conversations we had at the Rose Bowl about the interconnectedness of people, like, so much yeah. is connected. I mean, mm-hmm. not just people, but systems um, connected to yes. the planet. Uh, there's, the, we don't live in a vacuum. We don't live in this isolation mm-hmm. where the only thing that affects, that my actions affect, um, are affecting is me. Yeah. And you know, it even led to me thinking of, I mean, it even changed how I approach my runs. Um, <laughs> rather than just focusing on this one run, I gotta do really well in this one run and, and improve my time every time I run this run and start instead pulling back and looking at all my runs Yes. and how does this one run fit into all these runs and knowing Mm -hmm. when to pace yourself because all of them are connected. You know, Mm -hmm. you push yourself too much in this one run and you injure yourself. Then it affects the next two, three, four runs. Right. And that's, Mm -hmm. and so it is with us. And so I'm glad, I'm glad you shared that. Um, you unpack that for us. I love this idea of a gospel without action is not a faithful gospel. Mm-hmm. Now that that'll preach, as they say, that'll <laughs> preach. Um, and I think that's where I may be getting a little bit ahead of myself because we'll come back to this. But I really think that's where the church misses it. Not so much in what to do, but the interpretation of the gospel. What does the gospel yeah. mean? Right. Mm-hmm. I think so much starts with our interpretation of things. What does this really mean to you? How do you Mm -hmm. understand this? Because that will inform what you then do, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So so I'm- I'm, Yeah, my friend- No, go ahead, go ahead. My friend, Christine, she, we use this metaphor of running a lot in the fight for racial justice, right? Like that it's a marathon, not a sprint. But she talks about this idea that it's more of a relay where we take the baton and we have our role to play and then we hand it off to someone who is ready to take it to the next and that our rest in this work is as important as our action, but they are not, we're not choosing one or the other, that both are equally as important because it's a collective work that I can take a day of rest and recover because others are also carrying the baton forward. And that's been so helpful for me in terms of trusting that the work is getting done because there's always so much work to do. But this idea that I'm not the only one doing it, that actually other people are just as important and have other roles to play has been so helpful for me and being able to do it in a way that's sustainable for the long term. Absolutely. You know, you, you the work that you do, what you're engaged in, um, I would identify, and many others, I think, would say allyship. Mm. Some would say co-conspirator. <laughs> and, and we'll get into that in just a second, those, those terms. Um, the collective work that you speak of, in my opinion, and I think you would agree, is incomplete without allyship. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. This work can be draining. It can be discouraging. It can be hard. And there's only so much I can do. Mm-hmm. And I'm a firm believer that people of color, because of the embodied experience of racism 
or with racism mm -hmm. can lead us out of this. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that white folks lead us out, yeah. but I don't think we do that. We don't get, we, I don't think we get out without white folks involved mm -hmm. because that is who's going to dismantle or disrupt, further disrupt this idea of white ideology, whiteness, white supremacy within the white community. Only so many gonna, are gonna hear me, yeah. but many will hear you from, from that community, mm -hmm. from that group, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. this collective work that you speak of, um, I'm gonna transition to this idea of, of allyship, of being an ally. In my film, Open Wounds, I identify two of my friends that are in that film um, as allies. I don't just call them friends. I don't just call them, give them a title. I call them allies. And I did that purposely because I wanted people, I wanted someone to ask, why did you call them allies? I wanted that conversation because yeah. they, they too are doing the work to mm -hmm. disrupt, right? They're taking risks. Um, yes. And I, it makes me think of Jonathan and David. And this is how mm -hmm. I'm framing um, what does it mean to be an ally? You know, mm -hmm. Jonathan's father was the king. In scripture, mm -hmm. Jonathan's father was the king. The, and, and Saul, the king, was jealous of David. You know the story. Yeah. David's life was on the line. Saul wanted to get rid of him. Jonathan co-conspired, <laughs> <laughs> was an ally of David mm -hmm. against his own father, mm -hmm. which put him at risk. Mm-hmm. Even if it wasn't risk of death, it could be risk of banishment. It could be risk of a healthy relationship with his father. But he put his life on the line because of his friendship and his love for David. That, to me, is the picture of an ally. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, you know, we, we talk about... We talk about ally versus co-conspirator, and you and I laugh when, when I when I talk about co-conspirator because we've had this conversation. Um, I want to hear your your version. Why you? Because you entered you you were one of the the two or three people that shared um, co-conspirator with me, mm -hmm. and so I want you to help people understand um, why you choose that term. Um, is that the term that you still use? Um, and help help them understand that. I'll, I'll share. My, my reason why I don't use it as much, but I'm not against it at all, by no stretch. Sure. But unpack that for us. Um, sure. What does it mean to be an ally or a co-conspirator, to use your term? Well, I love that you connected it to David and Jonathan, Phil, because I think they're perceived rivals, right? And there can be this idea that the white people and people of color are rivals in this work. And it's like, no, we are on the same team. We just have different ways of contributing to the work. And I think over and over in this work, we we come, we bump up against the difficulty of language, that we don't mean the same things when we use the same terms. Like white people talk about racism, prejudice, and um, discrimination as the same thing, when those are three very different things. And if we're not agreeing about the terms, then we're not actually going to get anywhere in the conversation. So I feel like ally, advocate, accomplice, co-conspirator, we can think those all mean the same thing on the surface, they're interchangeable. But I just appreciate this question because I think, especially as a white person in this work, it's rare that I'm confronted with the like 
the desire to answer that question. What is motivating me? What makes a good ally? Am I the person that can even dis define that? Can, can I say I'm a good ally? I don't think so. So ultimately for me, I think ally um, is, is a term that I can't call myself because someone else can call me that. It's based on how my actions actually impact someone, not my perceptions of my actions. Um, Rachel Cargill is the one that I heard using the word accomplice. And she says, instead of saying, I see you, I hear you, I'm gonna use my voice for you. As a white person, we tend to have those kinds of responses. But she says it's better to say, you know, be alongside of you, upend the system that's killing you every day. And being accomplice then has like a kind of criminal connection in our language though, like an accomplice to a crime. Um, and I don't like that when it's connected to liberation and advocacy in some sense. Um, the word advocate seems to be a little more user-friendly, at least for me. And that's connected to the French word for lawyer, avocat. Uh, but a person who defends justice and works for what is right, that really resonates with me. Um, and I think it's important for people with privilege to be advocates. Uh, like as a woman, I didn't get the right to vote until men actually stood up and demanded that women have the right too. And I think we have consistently in the history of our country seen people of color advocating. What we have not seen consistently is white people joining in that. And I think that's why we haven't been able to kind of turn that corner because we are the power brokers in every level of society, white people have power and privilege. And so until we can be part of that struggle as advocates, um, then I think we, we aren't gonna see the progress that all of us want to see. And then in terms of co-conspirator, I think it's, um, it's another term that's related to law um, where a person that provides evidence in a case is a co-conspirator. And I actually think as a white person, I want to be a person that says, I see evidence here that racism is a problem and affirm the voices and experiences of people of color that they are having so that my white brothers and sisters might be willing to listen to me, as you said. Um, and I like this idea that conspire in the Latin has the root word breathe in it, this idea of breathing together. Breathing together. And we have to be proximate in order to do that. We can't be in separate rooms and breathe together. And so that definition is growing on me in a way. So. <laughs> yeah, I, you know how I feel. I, I used allyship and maybe because I, I like the war context yes <laughs> i don't know if that's masculinity or what <laughs> but i think we're in a battle i really do think we're in a battle we, you can you can yeah. say we're in a spiritual battle and i'm not afraid of using the, the war context but I also when i think of ally i think of people who take risks um when you think of a war and mm -hmm. you know the wars we've been in they're they're allies that lose their life in a war that was not necessarily um they weren't the targets of the of the adversary. Yeah. Right? They could have stayed clear of this war, but they engaged as well, putting their, their lives at risk. Mm -hmm. And so that was huge for me, mm -hmm. the risk part. Because not yeah. many people, there are people who I believe want to be a part of the work, but they don't want to take the risk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Co-conspirator, my friend, Dr. Um, Stephanie Body at Baylor University shared with me 
um, why she uses that term. Because for me, the term conspirator and accomplice um, has those cultural con connotations of yeah. crime. And so much yeah. of what we do as African-Americans have been associated with criminal activity. It's bad. And so I, I, I didn't want to have those. I didn't want to have the work that I do be labeled or associated with anything that had a criminal context or a negative context, right? And yeah. then that, that idea of the Latin um, to conspire, it comes from a Latin word that means to breathe together like you shared. And I was like, oh, because I love tracing the etymology of words mm -hmm. and going back and re rehabilitating the words, right? So mm -hmm. that fit for me. So now I'm, I'm okay. And, and the way you're unpacking accomplice and all those things, and, and maybe, as I'm just thinking of this as I'm talking now, maybe that there are some words that are appropriate for some groups. So maybe co-conspirator for white folks is the appropriate term, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and, and for me, because of the cultural connotation of the word, it may not be, or accomplice mm -hmm. may not be, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. and having that fluidity, that flexibility to be able to use those terms where appropriate, you know, again, I'm just unpacking this as after I'm listening to you, um, yeah. because I, well, and that's I, such an important part of this work because I feel like it does evolve, it does change. I've even noticed as the dialogue nationally has shifted more to AAPI solidarity, there's a check in me of like, do I do the same things I do when it's Black Lives Matter? And and we have to have that flexibility, but we also have to keep defining the language, right? And making sure you and I are talking about the same thing when we talk about ally or co-conspirator. And it's so funny you mentioned that because I was just thinking like, well, in World War II, they were called the allies, right? Like they had skin in the game. These were countries that weren't directly impacted, mm -hmm. but they actually were willing to lay down their lives. And I think there's something about that that's yeah. like, allyship is that lifelong commitment. It is not, I can just opt in and out as these things come to our national attention or not, but just that I'm willing to continue to press in with that battering ram of justice and attack the systemic inequalities. And I think as a white person, for me, the added element for that is I have to do the self-reflection on my privilege, on my bias, because I can so easily slip into the worldview that how I see and experience things, everyone else does too. So I have to keep interrupting that my experience is just my experience. And I need to be in relationships with other people having other experiences. But that to me is where allyship is so fun because we get to have these experiences that we we were intentionally segregated away from, right? Our yeah. neighborhoods were designed to keep us apart. And yet, I don't know, going and walking at the Rose Bowl with you, Phil, gives me joy. It gets my brain going. I got to yeah. like journal afterwards because exactly. I'm thinking about so many things that my brain would not think of in a conversation with a white person in the same way. <laughs> exactly. You know, when I think of ally, when you lay, you said the term um, laying your life down. And mm. so I think ally is gospel-esque. Mm. Right? Yes. It's messy yes. in that war context. Blood was shed. And, and for some reason, we shy away from the messiness of the cross, mm -hmm. the messiness of the gospel, the messiness of Jesus's life you know, the, the, the purpose of Jesus's life, right? Mm -hmm. We want a sanitized version. And I, that's why I'm not afraid of the, 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 the allied term being framed in terms of war and battle, mm -hmm. because, you know, be honest with you, you take someone with an addiction, they are in a battle. Yeah. Right. 
you, mm-hmm. we, we have battles all the time. And to shy away from that, to sanitize it because we want nice and we want clean and manicured, right. that's not real life to me. Mm-hmm. Right? right? That's not real mm-hmm. life. So that's why I like the term ally. But I'm, I'm, I've become more flexible in recent days because I love, you know, the, the history of words, tracing yeah. the genealogy, the etymology of words, and rehabilitating those words and applying them where appropriate. Right. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. and, and again, this comes from a walk around the Rose Bowl. <laughs> right? Yeah. It comes right. from that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I feel like that proximity, that conspiring, that breathing together and sharing space is is for me as a white person essential. You don't necessarily need that because you have a lived experience that informs your work in many ways. And I don't necessarily. So I need that. I need to share space and stories in order to continue to keep it alive for me in some ways. I can choose to opt out. I can choose to be numb. And so that's why I'm so thankful for the work that I do and the the friends I have and just that there are people that aren't saying like, yeah, Sarah, go back to sleep. It's fine. <laughs> let's talk more about that. Let, let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's unpack that some more. Being proximate sharing space and Mm -hmm. what is it that hinders many of my white brothers and sisters from um immersing being immersed because i I think i'm I'm wrestling with this term and how to uh, i don't know if i'm if this is in my dissertation or not but this idea of baptism Mm -hmm. and me and a professor um have been talking about this for the last couple of years that there needs to be this baptism and he's a white professor he Talking about with, for the white community, there has to be a baptism. But yeah. what does that look like? Yeah. And so yeah. this immersion into, and I think I think the video camera does mm. that, serves that purpose. It, yeah. it is a tool for baptizing those who would otherwise not see what happened to George Floyd. Like that is, that happens way more often in this country historically mm-hmm. than people understand. That's not a one-off. Yeah. And yeah. so because of the pandemic, everyone was kind of forced to see this video. Right. And now being baptized, immersed in this messiness, mm-hmm. and then eyes can be opened. There's mm-hmm. a dying to self that happens, an old self, an innocent self, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so talk more about what hinders my white brothers and sisters from wanting to be proximate, even the ones who say that they're open to doing the work, but still from a distance, like it's almost like there's a fear. Can you shed some light on that for us? Yeah. Well, I, I love that you're using spiritual language because I do think like at its root, this is a spiritual issue in our country specifically because of the way white supremacy and Christianity merged at our foundation. And I don't think there's a lot of understanding about that among white Christians, especially, but, but it's essential to the learning to dismantle how it's operating. Um, help, I just help them it, understand, help them understand right yeah. now. Right. Yeah. So I think it's for me, I think the church is really on the back end of this instead of the front end in terms of leading the conversations and using our platforms to speak out Um, for those who are most marginalized, which is the consistent call of the gospel, Old Testament, New Testament. We see this over and over again. And yet I think when it comes to white Christians, there's three basic things 
that I see hindering them. Obviously there's more than that, but I think they kind of fall into these three different themes for me because I see this in myself, right? I think the first is unbelief. Many white people just choose not to believe that racism is a problem. And I think this denial actually serves a purpose for them. You know, shock and denial are sort of these trauma responses that white people experience when they have a conversation about race. And if they deny there's a problem, then they can abdicate themselves from having to engage. I think it's a kind of sophisticated way of opting out. Um, I see this a lot. I teach these table talks, which are five week classes for white people that are kind of intro level conversations about race. And every time I teach these classes, someone will say, "I'm this is not a safe group. And what they mean is that this is uncomfortable, right? That, that we know the group is safe. We have procedures in place. We talk about the group norms and safety. Every time we take a survey at the end, people say this was a safe space. But what that person means is that this is very uncomfortable, uncomfortable for me because I don't want to believe what you're saying. Mm. I would rather stay in denial. And so it's having to confront that unbelief. And that's on a broad level, our national history, we don't know what we don't know. We are not taught our history that could inform our belief. And I think it's at a, a level of spirituality and discipleship that we are not discipled into a gospel that takes seriously injustice. And of course, I'm generalizing because there certainly are churches that take adequate steps towards confronting racism in their congregations and in their communities. But I would say as a whole, the big C church in the US is not doing that. Um, I heard someone call this type of un intentional unbelief, organized forgetting. And I really like that because it it's intentional, right? There's an organization to this forgetting, to this denial of racism being real. And I think the type of discipleship we're called to that with white Christians in particular, they've spent a lot of time and energy organizing that forgetting. And the term social justice now has even been weaponized as like liberal and leftist. When yeah, we see yeah, examples yeah. in the Old and the New Testament of God caring about social justice, of him intervening in the systems and structures that are negatively impacting those on the margins. So, I, and, and I think the Bible consistently calls us to remember, right, that there's but then we are organizing our forgetting as white people in the US. So we're in contrast to what the scriptures consistently tell us to do. So that first is that sort of unbelief or that unwillingness to believe people of color. Um, the second thing, which I know you noted already, Phil, is just fear. And especially now, I think in this context of polarization and this idea of being wrong or making a mistake, instead of being normalized as part of the process, as part of being a human being, I will make mistakes. I will be wrong at times. Instead of just that being part of this process, we have really, as white Christians, been doubled down on our rightness, right? That, and that leads us really to do nothing in terms of racial justice. I think the fear has been politicized in a way where it's like we're losing common sense. Like recently a friend of mine said that she heard they were going to take away all the Bibles. And I'm like, who is they? Like, which they would be doing this. Like, like putting, she also said that, you know, what happened for the Japanese internment camps could happen to Christians now. And I'm just like, what are you even basing this on? 86% of Congress is openly Christian. They are not going to vote to take away our Bibles. But it's like this manufactured fear has then 
this allowed her to think rationally about what is actually true in our country. And, and I just think this, she, she feels like she's being persecuted, but I think that kind of fear disables her, right? She is not able to think clearly. She's not able to see the truth that we would never have 60 people in Congress vote for that to happen. <laughs> like, but it's like that fear then keeps her out of the game, keeps her out of actually moving forward, out of engaging in biblical justice in a way that could not only transform her community, but transform her. Um, and so unbelief, fear, and I think the biggest one is this third one is just that we don't understand white supremacy and how it works and how it operates. And I think this is really the greatest threat to the church in the United States right now. Um, Willie Jennings said white supremacy is a parasite that can't survive without a host. Yeah. And the host it attached itself to is Christianity. And I mean, there's so much we could unpack here, but I yeah. think the people that stormed the Capitol and prayed inside truly think that they have a biblical worldview but they don't realize how our cultural interpretation of Christianity has been shaped by whiteness, individualism, patriarchy, capitalism. And I, I just think until we understand white supremacy and how it operates in our, in our country, but also in our churches, as white people, we're just not gonna understand how urgent this work is. And we're not going to be allies. We're not gonna get skin in the game because it seems as very optional, very outside of what our mission as Christians should be. Um, and I think it was Daniel Hill who wrote White Awake. He said, the most hostile environment for having conversations about race is the white evangelical church. Not just, not the evangelical church, because this is happening in black churches. This is a conversation that's been happening for decades and centuries, right? But it's in the white church. And so being anti-racist for me as a white Christian woman, means learning to identify how my church and my theology have been co-opted by white supremacy and seeing it, naming it, and then rooting it out. So for me, that's continuous work. It's education, it's action, it's self-reflection, and this sort of ongoing commitment that I think maybe in my lifetime, we might move the needle a little bit, yeah, but yeah. I, that ultimately is really a hopeful thing because I think unbelief, fear, and white supremacy are things that can be discipled out of the church. Yes. Um, and Issa McCauley recently spoke about this. He calls white supremacy a sin problem in the American church. And I think yes. because this is a spiritual issue, there's actually great hope that we can defeat these, these things that are keeping us from a real full, robust discipleship. So I don't feel hopeless, but I do feel like white people in particular have to wake up to the work that is ours to do here. And that has to happen in our churches, not just as individuals. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing all of that. <laughs> all of that will preach or teach. <laughs> I, I wanted to respond to this idea of organized forgetting. And, mm -hmm. and, and you touched on this. So this is not something you hadn't already shared, but I want to reiterate it. Um, it is, is hypocritical. For, for that to occur, particularly in the church, um, actually in the United States, because we're always um, hearkening back to founding right. fathers, certain mm -hmm. dates, certain things in history. We're always putting up monuments so that we don't forget, right? right. So there's right. a selective organized forgetting that, that, that happens, right? Because if you mm -hmm. look at scripture, scripture is a hip history book. Mm -hmm. It is recounting 
God's involvement, the revelation of God through the people of, of Israel and through mm-hmm. ultimately through Jesus, right? It's a history book. Yeah. So whenever we read it and engage it, we are remembering. It's the practice mm-hmm. of remembering. But then communion. Yeah. Communion yeah. is explicitly about remembrance. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Yes. But then all of a sudden, when it comes to the, it, the concrete issues that affect people's lives, right. mm-hmm. there's a selective forgetting, an organized selective forgetting. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you another question. You said, um, well, this is, just, this is just me kind of listening to you about the understanding white supremacy. And you can tell me, mm-hmm. um, as a white woman, and thinking about um, white folks, to understand white supremacy is what will lead to a questioning, to questioning the validity of almost everything. Mm -hmm. Christianity, to look at that entanglement, Mm -hmm. to to look at our history, the idea of white, not the the white in white supremacy or whiteness, but also the white in terms of identity. Now there's Mm -hmm. a a questioning of self, like who am I? Right. Is that, and I don't know if anyone's thinking that way, but would you say that that's accurate, that there's a, it causes us to question, causes people to question the Mm -hmm. validity of everything if they start to go down this road? Absolutely. And I think that's why people don't do it, right? That there's so much wrapped up in it that we we have to learn to separate our my Sarah being a white person from white supremacy as an operating system, because those are two different things, right? One's an ideology, one is an ethnic identity. But because white people gave up, like I'm Dutch American, but white people gave up sort of those ethnic um identifiers in order to belong to whiteness, to get the benefits of whiteness, which were citizenship and land ownership and rights and all of that, I gave up those things. So if I start to explore white supremacy and it takes away my whiteness, what else is left, right? And that's where white people, I think, that's why I have so much hope in this work because there's so much, our identity in Christ, our there's so much more to build our identity on than whiteness. and. All of this is happening really at a subconscious level for white people because we don't go around most of us. I mean, some people may be at the Capitol, but most of us aren't saying white is better, white is good, but we're receiving those messages all the time from what we see on television, from the privileges we inherit, um, all kinds of things that subliminally affirm my whiteness as good and normal. And so if I start to unpack that, and this is where I think we need community, we need the church to help us do that, without that um, courage to look that in the face and separate out what is Sarah as a white person and what is white supremacy as this ideology bent on destroying all of us? Because they have to do the work to separate those, right? God created me as a white woman. That was not an accident. That was not a mistake. That is a good part of who I am. But because of the way white supremacy operates in our country, I have to be very careful not to perpetuate it in, 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 in the times when I have the opportunity, when I can choose not to. But part of, part of that is just having the ability to see it and name it. We're just talking like baby steps, right? And then dismantling it. Yeah, and yeah. so 
I, it, for me, it was sort of this slow dawning. Like, I don't like the term woke because I feel like that's like, okay, there was this one moment and now I'm forever that way yeah. because I can be asleep. I find myself like perfectionism is one of the operating parts of white supremacy. I find myself like even wanting to do this interview perfectly. And it's like, that is white supremacy co-opting my mind. Right. Yeah. And I want, I don't want that to happen. I need to push that away and dismantle that. That has nothing to do with me being a white person. That is the operating system of white supremacy, but it takes work to see it and name it before you can even then overcome it or dismantle it. And, and you know, one thing I was thinking about is um, separating that. It, it causes the to question the validity in the church of Jesus. And that's right. a whole nother thing. Right. Now you're quite, because I challenge people now. Um, I, I did this on a, on a, a class I was a, a guest um, speaker in, and they asked me the question, um, so what do we do to change the theology? And I said, you have to see Jesus, begin to see Jesus as black. Yeah. And not yeah. so much racially black, although there are some who will argue that, um, right. but at the very least ontologically black. Yeah. The yeah. experience well, of being marginalized, right? Totally. And I feel like I was in my 30s before I realized there were no white people in the Bible. And I'm just like, of course, the, the images I saw growing up were like white Jesus and white disciples. And it's like, oh, no, these were like Middle Eastern men. Right. And then like learning from Esau Macaulay that like Simon of Cyrene was black, like he was a, from North Africa. And that like there were all these people in the Bible that were black that I missed because I was reading sort of this white supremacist version of the Bible yeah. that was whitewashed. And, and I feel like I had to learn to see that actually like Africa is really the historical root of Christianity. It is not Europe, like, but it's just been such a process of unlearning what I had learned in error because of white supremacy in a way. Wow. But what about this? Because you said separating myself from yourself from white supremacy, my, your yeah. identity from white supremacy. But what about this? Separating yourself from white. Mm, yeah. Right? Well, I think that's a necessary step in this work, too, because like when I say there aren't any white people in the Bible, like I you know, people will say, well, you know, in, in Revelation 6, 9, when it talks about every tribe and nation, white is not a tribe or a nation. White is this made up racial identity in the U.S. for benefits. Like yes. when I went to school in Kenya, there weren't any black people there. Yes. They were Kalenjin and Maasai and yes. it, like they weren't black. Like black and white is such yes. a unique way to view the world yes. from the U.S. It was created here. It has been sustained here. And so when I say like that there aren't white people in the Bible, there won't be in Revelation the image we see either. I will be Dutch Sarah or American yes. Sarah. Yes. But we've so conflated the terms, which I think makes the conversation hard to have if people don't understand some of those little nuances that actually make a huge difference in our understanding. Yeah, I, I had a, a conversation with a guy in a class I was taking um, maybe a couple years ago. And I was, I was actually doing a presentation on Willie Jennings' book, um, The Christian Imagination. Oh, so and I talked about, I probably veered too far away from 
what the presentation was actually supposed to be. <laughs> but I talked about um, that that dis disentangling one's identity from white. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, the the students may have been even been the TA, and he may have been asking this question just to get thinking people thinking. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because um, he was a PhD student. So he would he should have engaged in this. But even if he was asking for himself, he said, then who am I? If I'm not mm. white, who am I? Mm. And my response to him was, you got to go back to a time when you were not white. Yeah. And I don't know if people in that class really thought about that. Like mm. this construction of even white like there was a time when that would have been foreign, like white, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we and were... then it was initially a legal term coded into law, you know, and it's just like, wait, it wasn't just the way people look. No, like it, there were, there was reason, there was power, be Absolutely. power privilege behind it. And it was designed to disrupt people from the margins, poor mm -hmm. whites, poor blacks, enslaved Africans who were, mm -hmm. there was a, a revolt against the wealthy. And that was a way to separate, to divide, divide and conquer type of idea. Yeah. And now those white people who were on the bottom now felt like we're no longer on the bottom because we're a part of this group called white. And the privileges mm -hmm. came with that. And so many yeah. people don't even think about that. And so when we talk about white privilege not being a thing, no, it is a thing. It was legally a thing. Yes. Right. And it turned in and became a cultural thing as well. Um, I, I really appreciate and I always have um, your your transparency, but the natural ability as you un to just teach it, mm. it, it mm. to flow and to teach. I, got, I imagine people who are going to be listening, listening to this are going to be taking notes uh, <laughs> because you're not just sharing opinion. Your own opinion, not the opinions of uh, organizations you're affiliated with. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> but your own personal opinions, but they're rooted in fact. Mm -hmm. They're informed. You could tell that you've done the work. Mm -hmm. And you're echoing. You're an echo for that work, for those authors, those theologians, what have you. And so, but but here's the beautiful part of it your security in who you are first in Christ but as a woman as a Dutch woman I won't say white woman <laughs> but your sense of security as you unpack this mm -hmm. I think people need to hear it and mm -hmm. see it white people need to hear it and see it that you can critique whiteness and still be secure in who you are mm -hmm. in yes. terms of your identity. That's what I appreciate. Mm -hmm. Like I don't I don't I don't really hear from you um a, like still defending, like saying certain things but then stopping short to make sure you can still defend. Like I don't hear that. Mm -hmm. And that's what's needed. Yeah. That's why I, I say White people have to do the work to be a part of it, but they can't lead us out of it because there's this natural tendency for self-preservation. Mm 
And I don't really hear that. I'm sure there's some, because we're human, so there's some that, that may be there. But I don't hear that, and I appreciate that mm -hmm. from you. Let me ask you a couple more questions, because I want to get to your film. Um, who, who have been the people or who's been the person that's inspired you the most to be committed to this work? Yeah. You know, I have been so lucky to have such incredible teachers in my own life. Um, from Augustine, the little girl that I was in the process of adopting, I think I learned so much from her in that process. You know, and it wasn't intellectual, it was this relational knowing. Um, and then John Williams, who is the director of the Fellowship Center for Racial Reconciliation, has just been such a huge mentor to me. My hero. Yes, he has just created such a community and a space where I can fail, I can mess up, I can totally teach something wrong. And John comes back with love and humility and is like, get back up, dorm boss, we need you in the game. And I have just so appreciated his voice championing me saying, you do have something to offer. Cause I do think as a white person, we can say, you know what? It's not my role to speak. It's not my role. And that is a lie that we all have a role to play. Our roles are different and every white person's role is different than mine too. So, but I just think I, John has been such a champion for me and giving me the opportunity to teach and to fail and to be mentored. And I'm so indebted to him um, and his humility too, I think mentors me and just this idea that I don't have to get it right. Yeah. And, and he said, we were on a, a bus at the civil rights tour in the South and we get out of this museum and John's like, man, I just learned so much. And I'm like, okay, if he is a black man who's lived this his whole life is still learning. Why do I think I ever have to arrive? Absolutely. I won't like, and it was so freeing. So I'm super thankful for, for John's influence and the opportunities he's given me to grow and learn. Awesome. Yeah. I love that guy. He's a friend and, yeah. and, and, and I see him as a mentor as well. Um, the work that he does and, and, and you're right, the humility um, that he that he just operates from, you know, yeah. and it's important that that white people understand this. Even as a black man, I'm still learning. Yeah, I'm I become even more fascinated with aspects of what I learn and I become more drained and discouraged by certain yeah. things that I learn. But I'm still learning mm -hmm. and I'm going to always be learning. Yeah. Right. I think even the greatest figures in my in, in our community, the you know, civil rights leaders and, and those who went before them, I think even in their later years, they still expressed things that could that you could tell they were still learning through experience. Yeah. Right. They didn't know everything. And I think that's my one of my frustrations, if I can be honest with uh, a lot of white folks. When we talk about racism, they come in, they enter the the ones who are resistant, enter the conversation as if they already know everything about it. Right. Yes. And I'm like, wait a minute. I live this as a person of color, particularly as a black man. I experience things in ways that you have you can't even imagine. So how can you tell me how can you speak as an authoritative voice on all there is to know about living in a racialized society when I myself am still learning? How can you tell me absent of history? Right. And so that's been my biggest frustration is that. I can learn, I'm learning, and I know other people like John who are learning, but you come in the conversation having all the answers already, right. even theologically. Yeah. So that, that's, right. that's one of my frustrations. So I'm glad you, 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 you shared that. 
anybody yeah, any for white people listening like it's so important to say like we don't know what we don't know we don't have the lived experience and we have to come in at that level if we're coming in thinking we're experts like it just it just is not gonna go well and i think john creates a space where it's safe to say i don't know and i have some learning to do and to keep committing to that learning is so important yeah yeah um well actually i actually have another question Great. Outside, uh, I have two more questions. One more, and I'm gonna get to your, your film. So right. one question I have, because you talked about John creating a safe, sp a space, the yeah. space and the work that he does. Outside of that, mm -hmm. do you find that there are more safe spaces to engage than people may think? Do you find yourself as a white woman when you're in a space of people of color, pr protect uh, specifically, um, black spaces do you find that 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 you feel safe there or are there experiences where you don't feel feel that way yeah that i think goes back to that question of like is it safe or is it uncomfortable because okay. i think sometimes i have been in spaces that have been very uncomfortable but i've always been safe okay. like that there isn't a way that i am threatened or in danger by just talking about racism, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, maybe at protests, there are times when it's like, I don't feel safe with physically what's happening here. But but I think in, in my work, so I've been teaching this year, um, I'm doing a professional development for my staff every month on race and racism at my elementary school. And on my teaching team are two black teachers, myself and then our principal. And it's been so beautiful to see how eager people are to have these conversations. But I think our fear, and it's for people of color and white people, right? We get into this mixed setting and we're all sort of afraid to speak about what's been true for us or about our learning, our growing edges. Um, and so each month we have this professional development workshop and my teachers have been so engaged and the teaching team that's teaching with me have even said like, Sarah, it's such a relief to have you kind of come up with the content and invite us to participate because then we can learn too. That just because they are black educators, they don't understand everything about being black in public school. And that's okay. And I don't either. And as a white person, I don't understand everything there is to know about being white in these contexts. But when I think we create a, state, a space that feels safe, that has some boundaries about what we're going to talk about and kind of how we're going to engage and what's not going to be tolerated, that there is real hunger for people to have these conversations that really matter because there aren't many spaces being created outside of that. When I talk about our world being so polarized and so, you know, we think about Facebook or, you know, social media being the space, those, that's not the space where those conversations are happening exactly. that are transformative. Exactly. Those are the spaces we see the division. But I think in actual conversations with people we know and work with and do life with, people want you to bring up the topic. People want to discuss it, even though it's uncomfortable and I think that's where the growing edge is. We have to be willing to be uncomfortable in order to grow, in order to learn. We don't learn without being uncomfortable in some way. And we see that with students at the elementary level, but I'm thinking as adults, we get used to being comfortable, especially white people. We get used to things coming easy. We get used to kind of being the experts and kind of knowing what we know. And that has to be laid down in this conversation. If we really wanna hear about another's experience, if we really wanna work for change together, 
and have that kind of solidarity, we can't be experts. <laughs> wow, that's good. That's good. You talk about these experiences, um, transformative experiences. You had a transformative experience visiting Haiti. Yes. Haiti. Um, tell us about the experience, but tell us about your film that came out of that, that it's making its way through film festivals or hope, hopefully will be in many, many film festivals um, in the yeah. next in next year or so. So tell us about your film. Yeah, so like several things in my life, it sort of came about by accident. <laughs> but I had, um, I'd been volunteering in Haiti, um, like I said, for probably 15 years at that point. And so much of the conversation about Haiti is about the poverty there, is about the way that, you know, it's the poorest country in this hemisphere and all the challenges that they've had politically. But what I experienced in my relationships was so counter to that narrative that I heard, you know, about Haiti. What I experienced there was almost in direct opposition to that, the hospitality, the resilience, the joy, the creativity. Um, and not to idealize or romanticize that at all because there is suffering as well. But I just think that that I was really desperate to experience something outside of the city, outside of the poverty. Um, and so I, I heard about this organization called Expedition Haiti, and they do backpacking trips across the central plateau and the southern peninsula of Haiti. And it's a chance to really revel in the beauty and the culture. And because I speak Creole, it was such a fun way to be outside of the city and interacting with people. Um, so I, I did a backpacking trip with them and a documentary filmmaker came along on the trip with us because he too just felt he wanted to decolonize the narrative around Haiti, that Haiti isn't just poverty and political dis discourse. It's, it's really something so much more than that as any place really is. And so we shot this film, we entered it in festivals and we started getting awards. So the film is called Expedition AET, which AET is the Creole word for Haiti. Um, and it's about this backpacking trip in the South. And you see this gorgeous cinematography. You see the joy and the hospitality of the people in these trips. We don't stay in hotels or camp. We stay in homes of people that host us each night. So we would hike like 18 miles and have a family that would welcome us into their home. So it's very relational. We get to sit at their table and hear their story of what they do and how they came to live in this particular small village on the side of a mountain in Haiti. So it was the very core of what I think this work is about is like building relationships, understanding another's perspective. And so the film showcases that and it, you know, we were not sure if it would track with an American documentary audience, but it's been really fun to see it gain momentum and, and win some awards. So we'll see what the summer holds. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to, to watching the film. I'm looking forward to hearing more about its success in the film festivals. And hopefully we can I'll be in a space where I get to interview the star of the film and have a conversation um, about it in front of an audience. Who knows? Yes, great. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Sarah, anything you would want, last words, anything you would want to share um, in regards to the topic at hand, white allyship, that you may, may not have shared already that you would want to share specifically to your white brothers and sisters who may be, may, may be listening to this and, and for the first time 
um, even thinking about it. They've been resistant all this yeah. time. What would yeah. you What would you say to them? You know, I I first want to say like, don't give up. I think there's such an immediate way that we quit before we even get started as white people because it's uncomfortable and we're intimidated. And but I have I have so much hope that if white Christians in particular can take seriously our call for justice, biblical justice will be a part of that. It cannot be separate from that. And you know, as we said already, this is a spiritual issue at its core. And I think the white church has to be involved in defeating it. And the scriptures say that the rocks will cry out. And I think God will raise up other leaders in the absence of the church and in the absence of white people. But I think that there's still time for Christians in the U.S. to help us turn this corner. And that ultimately, you know, I think what we see in Christianity is a lifestyle of being in the world that is nonviolent, that is shared, and that is loving. And those aspects of the gospel, I think, are so important for us to contend for as white people um, and that we have to press in. We have to be part of the change that we want to see. We cannot sit on the sidelines and, and depend on our brothers and sisters of color to do the heavy lifting. We have to be in there with it. So have conversations, my white friends, have conversations with each other, find places like the Fellowship Center for Racial Rec where you can take classes and continue to learn um, in your community. Uh, it's too important, we can't give up. And you know, there's three questions that David Swanson asks white people to consider. He says, is there anyone close to you that doesn't know you're committed to racial justice? And mm. to sort of sit with that. If people were looking at my life, would they know that this is something that's important to me? Um, number two, he says, does the racial or ethnic makeup of your close friends look any different than it would if you were not a Christian? Which I think is compelling to mm. think about relationships and who we are friends with, who's in our inner circle. And if those people all look like me, that's not been a, a good discipleship. And then lastly, he says, can you identify one thing you're doing to interrupt the material damage inflicted by white supremacy? Uh, and I think those are good questions for white folks to sit with as they continue to engage in this work that, you know, is my commitment something that can be observed? It's not just in my head or what I'm learning or reading, but it's visible in the community. Um, does my friend circle represent my commitment? And can I identify the ways that white supremacy, I'm interrupting white supremacy. So I would say white friends, take seriously those things, continue to evaluate yourself and your life and press in. We cannot give up. We are essential. We are not sidelined in this work and we are not in charge of this work. So let's, let's all come together and do this heavy lifting in solidarity. That's amazing. Sarah, you're amazing. <laughs> Thank you for, for allowing me. It's been so fun, Phil. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I, I always want these conversations with the person I'm having them with to be more energizing than they are taxing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it definitely energizes me. And what mm. you shared um, energized me. And my mm. hope is that people would listen to this episode and walk away with a sense of feeling, um, you know, now... You said, we don't know what we don't know. Mm -hmm. They can walk yeah. away now saying, okay, now I do know something. Yeah. That can get me started in the work. Yeah. So, and I don't have to know everything before I start. Exactly. 
Exactly. So thank you so much for your time. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your 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 wisdom, your joy, um, all of it. I appreciate you. Yes. Thanks for the opportunity. This has been so fun. I want to close out this episode by sharing a poem at Sarah's request, written by Jan Richardson. And Sarah is reading this poem at the beginning, at the end of the short film that she's featured in, Expedition 80. She believes that this poem can inspire or shed some light or some insight for those who, uh, particularly white folks who are engaged in racial justice, the cause of racial justice, and maybe are discouraged and, and want to quit, or those who are hesitant and reluctant and are not engaged. And so I, I too hope that this poem inspires you and brings some insight for you. For those who have far to travel, if you could see the whole journey, you might never undertake it, might never dare the first step that propels you from the place you have known toward the place you know not. Call it one of the mercies of the road that we see it only by stages as it opens up before us, as it comes into our keeping step by single step. There is nothing for it but to go. And by our going, we take the vows the pilgrim takes to be faithful to the next step, to rely on more than the map, to heed the signposts of intuition and dream, to follow the star that only you will recognize, to keep an open eye for the wonders that attend the path, to press on beyond distractions, beyond fatigue, beyond what would tempt you from the way. There are vows that only you will know, the secret promises for your particular path and the new ones you will need to make when the road is revealed by turns you could not have foreseen. Keep them, break them, make them again. Each promise becomes part of the path. Each choice creates the road that will take you to the place where at last you will kneel to offer the gift most needed. The gift that only you can give before turning to go home by another way. Be on the lookout for Sarah's short film, Expedition 80, as it makes the film festival circuit this year. You can follow Sarah on Instagram at Sarah Dornbos. That's at S-A-R-A-H-D-O-R-N-B-O-S. Or you can follow her on Facebook by the same name, Sarah Dornbos. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I've enjoyed speaking with and interviewing Sarah. If you're not in the game, get in the game. If you are in the game, stay in the game. I'm talking about the game of social racial justice. I use that metaphorically. Another resource that could help you as you learn and grow in this conversation is my book, Open Wounds, that I'm excited to have have on the shelves of Barnes & Noble now. I'm not sure what stores will have them right away, but you can also order from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or FortressPress.com. 
Thank you once again for parking with me and listening at the intersection.